And this is my co-host, Benita, and welcome to The Feeding Phase, a podcast about food, board games, and feeding the gamers in your life. Today's episode is summer parties and catching the travel bug. But first, a recent game we played. Casey, what have you been playing? So, Benita, I got in my copy of La Granja Deluxe. Ooh, I have seen pictures and it looks absolutely stunning. So, La Granja is designed by Andreas Ode Odenhall and Michael Keller. And this new beautiful edition is published by Board and Dice. Jump back to January 2022, La Granja launched on Kickstarter. And I didn't even realize it was on Kickstarter because at that point, I was trying not to back anything because I had done too much in 2021. But obviously, I was taking in board game content. And whenever you listen to other people talk about board games, it makes you want to buy board games. Yes. And so I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts, Board Game Barrage, and they were talking about La Granja and how much they enjoyed it. And it really got me excited to try out the game, especially because any Euro that has player interaction always like gets me pretty curious. I totally understand what you mean by being influenced by other creators because I have definitely bought games because of you. Like every time you talk about a game, I have bought it like so many times. (laughs) You literally posted a photo of yourself with a copy of the estates. And I'm like, oh, I want that. And I bought it. And it's vicious. Oh my gosh. I bought Cafe because of you. And it took me months to track down a copy because I had to get it from Europe. (laughs) So La Granja is all about building up your farm and making deliveries of your goods to the market and craft buildings on the board. La Granja has a lot going on. There are multi-use cards, which I'm going to talk about in just a moment. There's also dice management, and there's also an area control mechanic in the game. So how does it look when you combine all three of these things in a Euro? Well, it's Pretty interesting, actually. (laughs) So the way a round works in La Granja is you are going to be rolling a set number of dice based off the number of players. And these dice are going to mark what actions are available every round. Okay. And the actions are technically your revenue because you're not really doing something. You're more taking something from the board. This is a really good way to get resources or pigs on your farm. You can get quick money. You can do movement on something called the siesta track, which is primarily for turn order. And you can also upgrade your goods. Another thing that's really cool about this game is you're not actually gathering resources. You have these dens on your farm and you're using player markers, which are just these little cylinders that are all uniform and they're just in your player color and that's what's tracking all of your resources so it's kind of like this movement thing where you move your pegs up an upgrading track to upgrade grapes to wine or wheat to food or a pig to cured meat (laughs) nice (laughs) yeah I always love a game that makes it easy for tracking resources though I will say the resources are incredibly tight in this game so there was never a point where I felt like I was overflowing in my deck because I was constantly pushing them out every round to get my player markers and deliveries out to the main board because that's where the area control game is going on. But probably my favorite thing about it is the multi-use cards. So 
what games do we know with multi-use cards? What are we thinking? Bruges from Stefan Feld. Such a good game. Oh, really? That's interesting because this isn't designed by Stefan Feld, but he did design one of the modules in the expansion, which I am going to oh. talk about in a moment. Isn't that so cool? <laughs> yeah, that is really cool. Another game I like to think of for multi-use cards is I'm going to Rome. Okay, so for our listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with multi-use cards, what am I talking about here? So when I say a multi-use card, it means that depending on often the orientation or where you're placing the card, it'll have a different purpose altogether. Not even like, oh, it does a different thing. No, like it like functions completely differently in this aspect of the game. So for this, you pull up the card and it has four options for you. Okay, you can either stick this card, they're called farm cards, you can stick the farm card on the left side of your board. Now it's a field in your farm and it propagates every round at the beginning and you can harvest from them grapes, olives, or wheat. If you put it in the right side of your board, it's going to make your farm more powerful, like maybe give you income every round or it can give you an extra way to deliver. It can also increase your hand size, which is super valuable in this game because obviously the cards are so important to your system. But those on the right side have a little bit of a cost to them when you place them. You can also place the card in the top of the board. Now this is crucial because cards placed in the top of your board are orders that you're filling to deliver to the market. They're your market barrow cards, okay? And this is one of the main ways you're scoring victory points in the game. So if you're not placing cards and taking the time to slot them into this top spot, you you might be producing the goods, but you're not going to really have a place to deliver them that actually earns you solid victory points. And then finally, you can place the cards into the bottom of your board. There's three spaces here, and these are your helper spaces. And these are basically like the workers on your farm, and they have they grant you really cool abilities, some of them very powerful. So to earn victory points in the Granja, you really only have two ways. You can make deliveries to craft buildings, and this will get you a, a little bit of victory points, but not a lot. It's more going to get you special abilities, which are crucial to building up your farm. But the most important way to get victory points is delivering to the market. And you do this with the market barrow cards we talked about earlier that you slot into the top portion of your board. So whenever you make a delivery, that's where the area control mechanic comes in because you're delivering to hexes in the market that are the same value as the market card you just completed. And when you place your player marker, any opponent that is in a hex next to you that is in a lower value gets bumped from the board. And that increases the victory points you're earning from the delivery and deprives them of victory points for the end of the round. Because every round, who's ever present in the market is going to score points. So if you're bumping everybody off, they're not going to score anything at the end of each round. Ooh, that sounds a little punishing for your um, other players on the board. Oh, totally. And But I will say anybody who's present is only getting one point per player marker. So okay. I don't think a swing of losing two points in the game is going to hurt you. But you really have to make sure then you get back in there the next round and then you're bumping their pieces that time around. I like that. I like that you, you've talked about a multiple mechanics. You talked about multi-use cards, which... I absolutely adore. And you talked about area control, which you know, I really love those types of games. So I'm definitely very curious about playing La Grania. Yeah. And this new Master Deluxe Edition brings in 12 modules. 12? 
That's nuts. That's a lot. It's insane. And so obviously I had to play with a couple of them. Of course. Not on my first time. Of course. Everything I just described to you is the base game. So it's a lot just to start. So I definitely recommend just playing the base game because it's quite fun alone without any modules. Yeah. Some of the modules that I got to try is their big one is the bustling town module. In this module, you're actually adding buildings to the market. So that's a new action available to you during the revenue phase. So when you put these beautiful little meeple buildings that you're putting out onto the hexes, then it turns into an even more area control game because only the people who are controlling the hexes that border that building are going to get access to the building's effects at the end of each round. Tell me more about that module that Stefan Fell designed. Oh yes, that is the counselors and outlaws. So this is really cute because you have to pick and choose which one you want. You can either play with the counselors if you want a more casual game, maybe something a little friendlier, or you can play with the outlaws which makes the gaming experiencing more punishing and is only recommended for experienced players Ooh, okay <laughs> yeah so it adds these gray dice into the game and you know how i said in the revenue phase you're rolling dice and then that dictates what types of things you can take during the game so right it'll allow you to take more money or maybe a couple of resources something of the sort sure yeah i remember well now there's going to be gray dice in the mix and if you want to take a gray dice and you're playing on the outlaws the mean side it costs. It's going to cost you something. So for example, if it's a four, it may cost you a wheat. And so you would have to mark that you paid the wheat. And if you can't pay it, you can't take the die. But if you're playing on the counselor's side, the gray dice actually give you a bonus, but you still have to pay. So for example, that four now only costs one coin or victory point. You take the die and it'll grant you an extra resource on top of what you're already getting from the action. On top of that, the friendliness continues news. If you can't pay, you can still take the die. You just don't get the bonus. Okay. That's pretty cool. And one of the modules that's actually super easy to implement is the Ladies of La Granja. And obviously any title that has ladies in it, I immediately want to play. Ladies of Trois, Ladies of La Granja, I'm sold. <laughs> and what this module brings is an asymmetrical player power. Who doesn't want a little player power all to themselves? Ooh, I really enjoy like little asymmetrical powers in Euros. Same. So my lady gave me a die that allowed me to take an extra action during the revenue phase, which really came in handy. But obviously, I could not take in all 12 of those modules. We also played with the donkey song. The hell is donkey song? How do you get your goods to the market, Benita? How, Casey? How? Well, by donkeys, of course. <laughs> So there's actually this really cool mechanic in the game where everybody starts with what's called donkey tiles, okay? On these tiles is a set number of donkeys and the donkey symbol tells you how many deliveries you can make. So you might be producing all of these goods, but if you don't have the donkeys to take them to your market burrows to deliver them to the market or to deliver them to the craft stores, you're out of luck. One of the puzzly bits that I really loved was actually trying to figure out how to get enough donkeys to deliver all the goods to the market, but do it in a way where I'm going after my opponent so I can place my marker to knock their marker off and not have my marker kicked off by them. The headspace it put me in was so delicious. I loved it. Fully, fully recommend La Granja. It was fabulous. I can't wait to dive into the other modules. And some of the modules even make it a more casual experience. So if you're worried, you know, that's too much player interaction, you should really check out these modules because they give you 
you a great blurb for each one and what type of experience it's going to bring and how it's going to change up the game, which was very thoughtful of Boyd and Dice and I very much appreciated. Casey, I'm really glad you talked about a heavier game because we are going to dial it back a little bit and keep it chill in Dubious. Dubious is designed by Dave Neal and published by Arcane Wonders, and it is a storytelling deduction game. If you're near your computer, you should Google it because the box art is so cool and spooky and evocative. In Dubious, you are creating a story for your character and you have a hidden occupation and a hidden secret. And the goal of the game is for people to guess what both are. Oh, so it's a social deduction game. I would say it's different from social deduction because it's not a team-based game. It is every person for themselves. Oh, so it's kind of like a puzzle where you have to figure out everybody's roles at the table. Yeah, and you do this by listening to people's answers and marking down off of base off a table being like oh this person it definitely is not a taxi driver or this person ooh i wonder if they have multiple children is it role playing so there is role playing and that's really cool so how this game works is that in the beginning of the game you are going to be given two occupation cards and two secret cards and you will select one of each and discard the rest for each location that you choose um like the modern fantasy or victorian setting there are 14 separate occupations and 14 separate secrets so you know two out of the 14 already and then there are going to be five questions that are randomly selected and there's a bunch of questions of the games it keeps the game really fresh and the questions are like if you could have any superpower what would it be another question could be like what do your hands look like but you're answering these questions based off the character you are trying to portray to everyone because again you want people to guess your occupation and your secret but the way that points are awarded is based on the fact that you want some people to guess but if everyone guesses you get zero points that's so cool so like if i'm a washerwoman and i'm being asked about my hands i might say that my hands are pruny exactly does everybody know the list of occupations to choose from yes everyone will get a table that tells depending on what setting you're playing in the 14 occupations and the 14 secrets so that is common knowledge and there's a lot of the occupations and secrets kind of can be similar because you don't want people to guess it right 100% because then you will get no points. If you're playing with four people, you want two people to get it right and one person to get it wrong. That's so interesting. So for example, let me, let me, like I've played this game a few times now and I think it's super fun. Most recently played in the modern setting and my occupation was detective and my secret was that I visit my relatives in prison. The question that I was given for what do my hands look like, I said, you know, my hands are a little bit rough but I keep them warm with coffee. I love that. Thank you. That's so cool. <laughs> I'm getting true detective vibes. Yeah. So I'm very pleased. <laughs> and then, and then, so for another example, like I had mentioned, like what would be your superpower? I said, I would wish to be two places at once because I want to be doing my job, but also visiting my relatives in prison. Like, Ooh, that's hard. That was kind of like the vibe I was trying to give with my answer. So like I said, two people got my occupation right. 
one person got my secret right and then the other two didn't. So like I didn't do the best job with my secret, but it was enough clues were dropped that one person did get 100% correct. I think the modern setting is fun. I definitely had more fun playing in the Victorian setting because I like to bring out my really bad British accent. <laughs> <laughs> and I like to do it where before you even answer the first question, I wa- I like to have people around the table being like, what's your name? You know, things like that. And oh, it's just, it, it's very much like a storytelling thing. And it's just, it's fun. I've seen people get really into it. And, you know, you're only asking five questions. Everyone answers the questions. There's a really big notepad where you can take notes down because right before everyone starts to guess, we repeat our answers to everyone else. So like, if you're like, you didn't take good notes, that's fine. We're going to tell you the answer. So you want to make sure you write down your whole sentence to answer these questions so people can like follow along. And it's it's great. I just, I really enjoyed it. How long does it play, Benita? I've played it only at four players and it plays in about 45 minutes. Oh, so what's the player count go up to? Six people. I was honestly surprised by how much I enjoyed it. I really like deduction-y games, but I think the addition of the storytelling aspect is so much fun because anytime I get to talk in my bad British accent is a good day. No, that sounds like a really nice switch up to what you would think of as this type of deduction game because now you have this added difficulty where how good are your friends at giving the clues? Exactly. And like, you know, sometimes when people think of deduction games, right now what's really popular is Turing Machine, which is all based on numbers. Mm. Dubious is based on like how creative you can get and how you can guide people to your occupation and secrets by answering these like wacky questions. It sounds like the type of game that'll get people conversing at game night and kind of liven the crowd up. Definitely. One of the times I played it, someone's occupation was influencer. They really went with it. Like they were talking in like the quote unquote influencer accent, like, yo, 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 it's Yacht Rocks 96. And they had so oh much God. fun with it. Please tell me it was Pervon. It was not Pervon. <laughs> it was, it was actually, it was actually Robert from Arcane Wonders. <laughs> and he just like was having such a blast with it. And I was dying like the whole time. Every time he would talk, every time he would open his mouth, he would just speak in this like quote unquote influencer voice. And I was almost crying by how funny it was. That is perfection. I wish I was there for that. (laughs) Dubious really surprised me with how much I enjoyed it. And if you are looking for a deduction game with a very quirky storytelling element, I very much recommend Dubious. So summer for me, Benita, means traveling to see family. And when I'm with family, trying to get them to play a game with me. And that's why on today's episode, we're talking about summer parties and catching the travel bug. Oh my gosh, it's hot out here, y'all. So Benita, when we're traveling, we all like to munch, right? Do you like to munch when you're on the road in the plane? I always want to munch, (laughs) yes. (laughs) I always want food and snacks. Okay, so when you're traveling, plane, bus, what's your primary mode of transportation? What are you packing to eat? And what are you packing to play? So I am obsessed with charcuterie boards. I love grown up Lunchables. I always want cheese. Me too. (laughs) Oh my god, you just made me so excited. I always want cheese and meat and crackers. Who doesn't want those things? So my go to travel snack, and this is mostly if I am driving somewhere, 
is making a charcuterie board to go. So that means I am getting cheese and slicing it up and putting it in packages, having some crackers and having salami and putting it into a cooler. Now let's talk about what cheeses and meats I am bringing along with me. Oh, yes. Don't tell me American cheese. Oh, please. I would never. <laughs> if you like American cheese, that's okay. You're allowed to like what you like. But, <laughs> but for me, I am bringing a few different types of cheese. I love me a good goat cheese. I am obsessed with goat cheese. I love the flavor of it. I love how soft it is. Sometimes I will get a little bougie and mix in honey and put some crushed red peppers on it. (gasps) Gotta have the little heat with it. Honestly, like regular goat cheese is fine too. I love all goat cheese. Then Trader Joe's specifically has this one cheese called unexpected cheddar cheese and it's a white cheese. It's nutty. It has a little bit of a strong sharp taste to it yeah it's so good mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so I, I like to crumble that up and then i like a manchego which is kind of a sweet cheese mm. it's somewhat sharp but not like as sharp as a sharp cheddar i like to have a soft cheese a hard cheese i don't go as hard as like a parmesan type of cheese manchego and unexpected cheddar is generally as hard of a cheese Mm -hmm, as i mm -hmm, go mm -hmm. i love it you have salty you have a little bit sweet and you got nuttiness in there perfect combo of flavors casey do you have any favorite cheeses i don't know i love all cheeses the more pungent the better um (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I love me some stinky cheese. I gotta say, there are a few stinky cheeses that I do not like. What is that cheese? Roquefort? No, people put it on pizza. Gargonzola, like gargonzola cheese. Gorgonzola, yeah. Gorgonzola, like a blue cheese. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You can have your stinky cheese. I have tried to like gargonzola cheese so many times and I just can't do it. Yeah, I mean, blue cheese definitely, it depends on what it's in. Like, I hate blue cheese dressing, but I do love like actual blue cheese, especially like I make a great blue cheese uh, cream sauce on steak and I bet you'd eat that. You'd like my blue cheese cream sauce. When I visit you in Seattle, we can put it to the test. challenge accepted there you go what am I gonna pair with this cheese I am a huge carnivore if you couldn't tell from last month's episode of talking about goat curry um but I really like spicy salami yum uh Aldi has a shockingly good like charcuterie board type of section and they have a lot of different kinds of salami and they have this like spicy salami that is just so good it's a little thick and I I pair so well with the cheeses I've mentioned already and you know you can get prosciutto you can get other types of meats again I prefer the spicy salami Mm -hmm. I like that heat in my charcuterie board Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. honestly you can pair it with whatever you want and then for the crackers I like to have two different kinds of crackers I want those table water crackers that are like you know almost a little bit tasteless so Mm. the cheese and the meat is doing the talking I don't know we're gonna disagree on this one but I also really like and this is a little bit funny I like the Keebler club crackers yes Keebler okay so I don't typically buy those for my charcuterie but they eat those by themselves I can they're too like they're layered so of butteriness yes so like sometimes those Keebler like club crackers that's all you want they're, they're so good and they really enhance the cheese and the meat but I mean table water crackers have their place like if I'm doing a especially like pungent type of cheese or something those crack because you want you want like it's a, like eating cardboard it's like I'm at my I'm at church getting the communion put into my mouth with those things okay 
I will preface this by saying I only buy the salt and pepper table crackers. Okay, I've never tried that. Yeah. Okay, I've only tried the plain and I hate the plain because it is like so dry in my mouth. (laughs) Sometimes I want that receptacle to like put the goat cheese and stuff on. Yes, the plain is not the greatest, hence why I usually get the salt and pepper ones. It adds a little bit of a pepperiness to it. But you just said you're a pita girl. I hate pita chips with my cheese. I love pita chips. Oh my God. I love me pita chips or I love me some smashed pretzels or classic Ritz crackers or Keebler crackers. Those are the only acceptable answers. Pita I'm chips sorry are to say, Benita. No, no. Pita <laughs> chips are fantastic <laughs> with hummus. But oh, of course. Not, yeah, but with no, cheese. like level no, up no, your no. game. Get the hummus, layer of hummus, then you put the cheese, then you put the meat all in one bite. Perfect. No, no. Mm-hmm. I'm this is this is we have to agree to disagree because the pita chips are too they're too flavorful in itself like you like when you when I think we're charcuterie board I'm thinking the cheese and the meat are doing most of the talking but when you add a pita chip it's the pita chip takes away too much attention away from the cheese and this cheese should be the star of your charcuterie board for me like the thing is like if I was doing an actual charcuterie board at like a picnic or thing I would I would add like nuts I would add like some dates or like, you know, dried fruit, like apricots. But we're being realistic. Yeah, and but we're talking about traveling. I'm thinking about in a car and bringing all that out is hard, but like I can cut up the cheese. You have a roll of crackers. Like it's easier to travel with you and it's just a fancy lunchbox or Lunchables, excuse me. And who doesn't want that? I love it. Let's talk about my go-to travel game. My go-to travel game is a game that's very portable so I can put it in my purse or in my suitcase. And it's not a game that you can play in the car but you can play when you get there or in a restaurant because it's not very much of a table presence. The game I'm talking about is No Thanks. It is designed by Thorsten Grimmel and published by Amigo Games. No Thanks, it's really simple. You, there's basically two rules in the game. You are either playing a chip to avoid picking up the face-up card or you're picking up the face-up card and taking any chips that might have been on the card and then you reveal the next card. Okay, what does that mean exactly? You have a deck of cards, but depending on the number of players, a certain number of cards are removed from the game and this becomes really key later. Goal of the game is to have the lowest score and how scores are calculated is that the value of the cards that you have taken is added up. So if you take a 35 and you take a 16, you total up the value of the cards but you can have runs of cards meaning you could have a 31 32 33 34 you are only going to add up 31 which makes the decision making of which cards to take really interesting because let's say I do take a 35 will I get a 34 will I get a 32 we don't know if it's already been removed from the game and like I mentioned you also have chips because if you don't want to take the card let's say you don't want to take that 17 for for whatever reason you put a chip on the card you gotta say no thanks in a really obnoxious way like no thanks (laughs) and it goes to the next person the thing is the chips at the end of the game are minus one point so like chips are valuable because they reduce the like the score you get because you're trying to get a low score you're trying to get a low score so those are they reduce the points you get and they also allow you to like say no to a card the thing is the number of chips you have is secret other people around the table don't know how many chips you have obviously you start off with the same amount but this becomes really interesting because let's 
say we're playing a four-player game, okay? Let's say we're playing with, like, Miguel and my brother. Miguel takes a 33 in a previous turn. 32 comes out. He knows no one really wants the 32 because it's such a high-value card. But he's like, you know what? I'm going to let this go on for a few rounds because I want people to place their chips on it so I can get those extra, like, negative points later. So, like, you put a chip on it. I put a chip on it. My brother puts a chip on it. Miguel can let it keep going a few more rounds because he's like, you know what? I know no one wants this 32. But what if he like miscalculates and like, let's say Casey, you ran out of chips. Now you'll have to take the 32. You'll take the pile of chips that are on that card, but now you also have 32. So it's definitely, you have to kind of keep track of like, how like, do I think Casey has enough chips to like let it go? And like a really interesting meta develops because like sometimes you will take the highest card because you're betting on the fact that you'll get a lot of negative points like via the chips people are placing on the card. How many chips do you start with? The number of chips depends on how many people you're playing with. Most of the time, everyone is getting 11 pass tokens. If you're playing with six players, you get nine pass tokens. If you're playing with seven players, you get seven tokens. No Thanks has been around a really long time. I want to say it was originally published in 2004. I have a version where it's just plain numbers. Then I was in Germany last year and a friend of mine had picked up a German version of No Thanks and there was actual art on the cards. It was this guy and bad things were happening to him. And as the numbers got higher, things were getting progressively worse. (laughs) And I thought the art was hilarious. So I spent like, two hours at Essen one day because in Essen there's booths where people sell like older games and oh, I went rad. to every booth being like do you have a German version of No <laughs> Thanks and and the thing is it's not every single German version so they would show me it I'm like oh mm. no not this version oh no this specific <laughs> so I want the specific version with like the the hilarious artwork like I yeah. wanted did you find it I did it, I went to the fourth booth the fourth booth I finally found it and it's so funny like in like the first card this guy is dreaming of a piano falling on him and in like the 35 card the piano falls on him oh my god I love that we have to play that copy it's travelable it's very small it's a very it's like a deck of cards essentially it's a little bit more because you have some chips and stuff but it it fits into my purse yeah are you gonna sleeve it no that's a good point maybe I should just because that one maybe maybe you bring the American version and just show me the German version (laughs) just show just bring two copies (laughs) (laughs) I've been known to spill a drink every now and then, so... thanks sounds so simple but I have introduced this game to so many different people and the rules are a little bit weird and it takes a round for most people to get it but once they do get it it immediately clicks for them and they have so much fun saying no thanks or like nope I'm gonna let it go around the table because I want your pass token everyone is always laughing and like once someone has to take a really high card because they run out of tokens the groans around the table are like <laughs> hilarious that sounds fun i have enjoyed no thanks for so many years and i absolutely love it so casey you are traveling to go visit your family what are you munching on okay so i wanted to bring up today a very special food memory that i have so when i was in college that was the early days of me traveling i travel a lot i've always traveled a lot for work to go to science conferences to go see things to do things i love to travel but in the beginning when i was in undergrad a lot of my traveling was getting in the car to go home and see my family and even now to this day when i go visit them i still have this fun food tradition where both 
of my parents together will make before I leave breakfast tacos to go. And they are so delicious and they bring me so much comfort for travel. And it's something I think about every time I travel. I don't get to do it very often and I often don't do it for myself, but I'm going to see my parents in a couple of weeks and I'm just like thinking about them and uh, knowing that hopefully I'll get a few uh, travel tacos on my way back. That is so sweet. Okay, so what's in these amazing tacos? I Tell me everything. Okay, so obviously I love me a taco, but what makes these tacos so special is my dad always makes from scratch chorizo beans. <gasps> so have you had chorizo beans before? No, but you said chorizo and you said beans and like I like both things, but together? No, I haven't had that that sounds amazing yeah and there's different ways you can come about it often it's with like our leftover charro beans because typically when I visit I request one meal and that's a big Mexican barbecue fajita cookout and if you're doing a fajita cookout you have to have charro beans and charro beans is like pinto beans that have been cooked in a lots of vegetables and it's this delicious like bean soup that I pour over my rice so the next morning in a shallow pan you can heat up your chorizo and then add in that leftover charro beans and the oil from the chorizo is going to cause this frying effect with the charro beans and all the water and liquid is going to evaporate out and you start mashing them along the way and this is going to create a chorizo refried bean and it is my mouth's watering talking about it it is so savory that sounds so good oh my god that sounds amazing so good it's so garlicky it's this beautiful like orange refried bean color that just like butter slathered on a fresh flour tortilla which I have to have anytime I visit the south (laughs) because fresh flour tortillas are almost impossible to find especially in Washington state that's what makes it like just that homey feeling that really really tangy chorizo beans and then of course often I'll have leftover fajitas cut up with some scrambled eggs and a homemade salsa my parents wrap it with a paper towel in between the tin foil so you don't get all of the Mm -hmm. condensation from the heat and you won't get this like soggy tortilla and yeah I'll have like four or five of those packs six if I'm traveling with Miguel (laughs) and I'll put them in my bag and they go through security just fine and it is just like my favorite thing to eat once I'm across the gate or if I'm driving it's my favorite travel food and food memory and it's like honestly like when I think of those a breakfast taco like wrapped up in tin foil I think of traveling this is so interesting because when we were younger uh, we would go travel a lot as a family and we would always pack like breakfast because like oftentimes the flights were in the morning and our go-to was like a pronta which is like kind of like a very like buttery and sometimes spicy like Indian bread and my dad specifically would make this like uh, scrambled eggs Indian style which like onions and tomatoes and spices and like we would wrap it up and we did the paper towel and foil trick too yes, <laughs> yes. yeah this is so interesting because there, this is basically like an Indian taco that you're just like that I'm talking about (laughs) (laughs) that's so funny we have such like similar like traveling like memories associated with that like that type of food yeah that's awesome I mean there's no better like it's such a loving way to say goodbye to someone right like I show my love cooking and it's how my family shows their love too so to really like send you off with that like last home cooked thing you know what I mean and it's just especially I'd never appreciated Mexican food until I 
left Texas. And I just never appreciated my mom's cooking. And my, uh, you know, because it was so accessible. I love that. When I lived back there. And now I'm never around it. So when I travel and see my parents, I'm like, no, I don't want you <laughs> I just want you to cook for me the entire time. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> I will cut yeah. all the veggies. I'm a good meal prep. I'll be your Sue. <laughs> That's so funny. And of course, while I'm traveling, I have to have something to occupy me. And like I said, I travel a lot. So sometimes my travel is with my husband where we travel together, but often I travel by myself. So I wanted to talk about a solo game that I have been pulling and making cherry pack on almost every single trip. And that's Bandata designed by Chase's step and published by Run Man Games. So Bandata can be played solo or at the two player count and that's it. And it's also a game about the size of your hand. So it can totally fit in your purse or carry on and travels very easily. What I like about Bandata is it's a dice management game and it is very, very crunchy. So in the game, you are a lover of birds, okay? True armchair ornithologist. Um, And you are trying to photograph birds, but how do you get the best bird photographs, Benita? How, Casey? Tell me how. (laughs) You have to lure your birds with their favorite treats. These treats are insects, nuts, and berries, okay? And the game is a dice management game. At the beginning of the game, you're gonna take the three different types of dice. You have four yellow dice representing nuts, you have four blue dice representing berries, and you have four black dice representing insects. You'll roll them all, and then you'll place them on the center board that both people have effect on, okay? And then the game is just played over four rounds. It is very fast paced, but where the time comes in is how you're going to make your decisions. Well, what are these decisions? Well, every turn, you have to decide what bird you're going to photograph. And by photograph, I mean you're drafting a bird card. And every time you draft a bird card, it's going to score. So all of the bird cards have how they score. And they score based off of the numbers visible on the dice. So for example, one card will say, I'll give you every point for every one that's out there. I don't care if it's blue, yellow, or black. Another card might say, well, I'm only looking at the yellow dice. And I'm only going to give you points for twos, fours, and sixes. And then another card, which is really fun and interesting, might say any color dice, if I see a straight, I'll give you four points. So how do you get the dice to match these scoring conditions? Well, at the top of every bird card is an action, okay? And it is a preset action. So you have to do exactly what it says. So one card might say you get to flip two berry dice. So what does that mean? You look at the four berry dice that are available and you get to choose two to turn over completely. Oh, that's cool. Yes. And so you are literally manipulating the dice on the board, but you and your opponent are doing the same thing because you're trying to get the dice to meet up to your scoring conditions. And the card you draft doesn't just score the first time you draft it. It's going to score every round after that. So you take a bird, Benita, you do its action, you score, and then you place it into your player area. Your opponent does the same thing. Done. That's round one. Now everybody scores for the birds in their player area. So you'll score that bird again. Okay. It's going to score twice on its first round. Okay. Then in the second round, you're going to draft another bird, play its action, and then you're going to score that bird. At the end of that round, all the birds in your player area are going to score. So you're constantly trying to get the dice to do new things for the new cards you're drafting, but you don't want to ignore your old cards. So you don't want to draft birds that have conflicting scoring. 
scoring, right. which there are a lot of birds that have conflicting scoring. Some birds will give you points for how many doubles there are, and other birds will give you points for how little doubles there are. So it behooves you to make sure that the birds you're drafting into your player area kind of work well together because um, you don't want to be taking away points from yourself by trying to score for another card. I've never played this game, and it sounds intriguing, but... Is it a little mathy? Oh, for sure. It helps if you know very quickly that when you flip a die, the value on the other side of the die is going to be whatever the value you see minus seven. You know that trick, right, Benita? I don't actually. Wait, what is this trick? The die face you see and its opposite side are always going to add up to seven. You have to give me an example. So if you see a one, the other side is always going to be a six. If you see a two, it's always going to be a five. If you see a three, it's always going to be a four. So if you're ever wondering what's the opposite side is it beneficial to flip my dice subtract whatever you see from seven that's the other side of the die how did I not know this thank you you have <laughs> changed my life thank you <laughs> it is so helpful yeah in board games, that's let me awesome. tell you. and I obviously somebody told me this it's always the information being passed down <laughs> like along the line that's awesome but yeah so if you don't like know some of those things right away it can definitely add like a lot of layers of analysis paralysis when you're drafting because often the cards you're drafting are gonna hurt your other cards so you're trying to kind of math out oh if I adjust this row by two and subtract one here. Is this going to give me what I want for all the cards in my scoring condition? No? Okay, let me look at the next bird card. And there's three you're choosing from. So I have heard from people that I've played with that while they could play it on BGA because BGA was doing all the calculations for them, they find that it might be a little bit too mathy for them to implement on their own. However, I gravitate towards it because I don't think I've ever experienced a game in such a small package, meaning both how quickly it plays as well as size and table space that really gets my brain thinking as much as Bandata. And that's something I tend to gravitate towards when I'm traveling because I want to occupy my mind. I want something that's going to keep my attention. Bandata is one that I've played solo multiple times. I love the adventure mode where you have goal cards on what type of birds you're trying to photograph. So you have to make these birds now work into your system, even if you're like, oh, this is not what I'm going for. And it's not just a solo situation where you score a certain amount of points and then that means you're an expert, right? You're competing against an AI type, air quotes for type, where the cards you're not selecting are counting for points towards your AI. So definitely if you're thinking for a thinky dice manipulation game that plays in four rounds, maybe 20 minutes, I really recommend checking out Bandata. Hey, Casey, I think our guests have arrived. Okay, so it was very difficult for me to choose just one party recipe. I pride myself on making delicious meals and bringing them to feed a group. So I thought I'd narrow it down and talk about something I did very recently, and that was making cochinita pibil. Have you ever had cochinita pibil, Benita? No, what is that? Okay, so cochinita pibil originates from Yucatan, um, very, very southern coastal Mexico. It's a dish I actually had for the first time when I was in San Antonio from this restaurant that specialized in deep southern Mexican food. So cochinita pibil is a slow roasted pork dish, but what makes it different from, you know, carnita, 
pizzas or other types of slow roasted pork is the seasoning. So the main ingredient in the seasoning is achiote. And it's this special type of seed that's ground up and it's very, very bright red. So a lot of people might see cochinita pibil and think, oh, is that spicy? No, that achiote seasoning actually brings this incredible umami earthy flavor that is just like so unique. But when you taste it, you know it. It's one of those dishes that when I've had it done right, I literally cannot stop like going back for it. When I was in Chicago for a science conference for Society for Neuroscience. Now Chicago, I don't know if you know this, Benita, they have actually a really great Mexican community up there and really good Mexican food. They went to this taco stand that was recommended and they had cochinita pibil tacos and I ate them and I love them so much. I literally went back there two more times during the conference. <laughs> That's awesome. How often are you on vacation where you're like, oh, I want to go back yeah. to the same exact place? I know. That happens so rarely. So I want to get some context for these achiote seeds. So is it like a, also a smoky flair, kind of similar to like an ancho pepper? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, You know, I, I don't get the smokiness as much as I get earthy. I get this like very like earthy okay. umami flavor. Now, why did I decide to even make cochinita pibil? Well, I was in downtown Seattle and I found this Mexican grocery store and they had freshly ground achiote seed. And I had actually only ever tried it once making cochinita pibil back when I lived in Baltimore, but I had to buy the seed off of Amazon and it was very lackluster to say the least. Okay. So this time around being able to get it where it was like um, more freshly ground, I could really taste the difference. And you're creating this seasoning paste and what else goes into it is going to be you have slightly smashed up peppercorns, you have whole cloves that are thrown in, tons of salt, okay, because it's a huge pork shoulder that you're roasting. I like to do two whole heads of garlic roasted. Now, depending on which recipe you go to, the garlic is going to be done differently. I recommend this way because um, you're really going to get that delicious like roasted garlic flavor, which I think is so tangy and so nice. But yeah, I take two whole heads. I cut off the bottoms. I cover them in olive oil. I throw them in the oven at 350 degrees for an hour and they come out and then I just squeeze them like tubes of toothpaste and it all just <laughs> oozes out. Yeah, so I create this paste and what makes it pasty and it's probably the second most critical component is the sour orange juice. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and originally this sour orange juice comes from a Sevilla orange, but I don't have access to those. So what I do <laughs> is I just mix orange juice with lime juice and you're going to get that sourness that you're looking for. But yeah, so you make this paste and it comes out bright red. It is so bright and beautiful and it actually will kind of stain. It's not as like staining as like turmeric, but it will, you know, be careful with it because it'll stain your fingers just a bit. And you cover your pork in this. And I actually like to stab my pork as much as possible because um, the flavor gets in. Yeah. Any marinade can only penetrate so far. They've done science experiments where they've tested how deep a marinade can penetrate using food dyes. And then you're going to wrap the pork and banana leaves. And you know, I get it. Banana leaves aren't easy to find. I, you can get them at any local Mexican grocery store and you take your banana leaves and I get my Dutch oven. So it's a lot easier and I lay 
down my banana leaves into my Dutch oven. And then I put the entire pork shoulder in with the marinade. And then I wrap over like a little present, my banana leaves. Okay. Can I ask you why banana leaves? Yeah. So I think um, banana leaves are going to, first of all, keep seal in moisture. Okay. The other thing is they allow for a little bit of a steaming component. So outside of the banana leaves, I pour water, but I don't want the water to, you know, get too much into the marinade and really like lessen how potent my marinade is. So I put quite a few banana leaves to create this bowl-like barrier. And the water is going to cause the steaming effect. And then finally, the banana leaves impart even more of that very like earthy, bitter flavor. You have the fattiness from the pork. And then you have that earthiness from the achiote. You have the sourness from the orange juice. You have a little bit of sweetness because you do put a whole cinnamon stick in the marinade. You're really covering all the food tastes over here. Literally, you want to hit everything, right? And then... Of course, you have the saltiness from the the salt you've added and the pork is going to be salty. But yeah, and so I marinate that overnight. And then the next morning, I was cooking this for a big lab party that we had. I threw it in at 6 a.m. and I cooked it for six hours. Oh, wow. 300 degrees. It was a big pork shoulder. And when I pulled it out, it fell apart. That bone... Just pulled oh, it out. Oh, nice. Came right out. Yeah. So good. So Casey, what does one pair with this amazing, fantastic, heavenly, sour, bitter, sweet dish? Obviously, 10-pound pork roast. That's cooking for a lot of people. So I need a game that can play a lot of people. Let's talk about a game I actually played with this group that I cooked the Cochinita Pibil for. A couple weeks ago, we had this big lab retreat where we all spent a few nights together at this house with a beautiful open space where we could, you know, do team building activities and also maybe play a few games. (laughs) A graduate student brought a game called Two Rooms in a Boom. Have you heard of this game, Benita? I have. I have actually played it at a convention years ago. I know. I'm so late to the party. This (laughs) game has been out for a while and has been raved about by many. But this was my first experience playing this game. So Two Rooms in a Boom is designed by Alan Gerding and Sean McCoy and published by Yellow. So if you're like me and you're new to the two rooms in a boom genre, this is a social deduction game. You're gonna need literally two rooms. I mean, it's called two rooms in a boom. And you have two teams of people. One team is the red team, the other team is the blue team. And what are you trying to do? The red team is trying to infiltrate the blue team, find their leader and assassinate them. So in the beginning of the game, you are split up into two different rooms and each room is given a random amount of cards. You are not just immediately put in a room with your team. You're just thrown into a room. You have no idea who everyone's identities are. All you know is who you are. So this is my first time playing it. I barely know the rules. I'm like, it's a party game. But I probably should have listened a little bit closer. And I'm put in this room with all the people I work with every day. And I look down at my card and I see Team Red. If you don't know Team Red, they're the bad guys. We're the ones trying to infiltrate and assassinate the blue team. But the only way to do that is if we can get in the same room by the end of the game are assassin and their leader. And it's not the moment it happens. There are five timed rounds where you are trying to decipher who everyone is in the room so you can vote who you want to send to the other room. Who's voting? Well, the majority in the room. And each room has an appointed leader. So, Benita, I'm thrown into this room. Everyone knows me in the group, right? We're all friends. We all work together. They know I love board games. So they say, Casey should be the leader because 
nobody wants to make the decisions of a leader, right? <laughs> right? Especially the first game of the night, right? Take the team leader thing. I look down at my card and I see that I'm red. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I don't know what to say. I don't know what everyone else should say. And everyone's quiet and just staring at each other. So I just kind of open up and be like, okay, what do people want? Should we make decisions? And David, another postdoc in the lab, a buddy of mine says, Casey, I'll show you my card if you show me yours. And I say, promise? And he says, yes. So we go to the other side of the room. I show him my card first like an idiot. Oh no. He sees it's team red and immediately goes, we need Casey out of the room. (laughs) And I'm like, you're not going to show me your card? And he's like, no, I lied. I was furious. I'm like, you can't just lie. Everybody in the room's like, um, yeah, you can. And I'm like, oh yeah, okay, fair. So then immediately they outvote me and take away my captain immediately. And little did I know that I was put into a room with four other blues. So I was the only red player in that room. So, and these rooms are randomly assigned too? Yeah. So you are like, we split up five and five. Five people go into one room, five people go in the other. They shuffle up the cards and they deal out the five. So you don't know if you're in a room, you got lucky and you got all all of the red team. Or maybe you got two red team and three blue. Because of my huge flub, I lost it for the red team almost instantly. They knew exactly what to do with me. They figured it out. And so the red team lost because we weren't able to connect our assassin with their leader in time. I think when Two Rooms in a Boom was brought up for us to play by Anthony, everyone was very much like, oh, it only takes a few minutes. Okay, I'll play one game, but only one. Everyone definitely had that like, you know, I'll I'll do one type of vibe. But then we played it and immediately when we were done, everybody wanted to play again. Everyone was so jazzed to play again. Okay, And I think we played a few more times because I will say there's something about when you know each other really well and you're in a big group, a game like that can really like shine. I can understand why Two Rooms in a Boom had so much love poured onto it when it first came on the scene. It really does what you want from a party game. It gets people moving, gets people talking, and it makes you active. I think any situation where you have a timer present, it's going to instill that kind of anxiety in you where you have to like make moves fast. And then sometimes that results in poor decisions where you show the wrong person your card without thinking about it. Yeah. (laughs) But you know, I would love to see this with a different theme. I think it's possible because like, you know, I say assassin and I say leader, but really it's president and bomber. And it's kind of like secret Hitler. You know, these types of games, I think they had their moment, but I think there's ways we can take these mechanics and center around themes that are a little bit more welcoming yeah exactly would I play two rooms in a boom again yeah definitely I think it's something that is played so quickly it can easily get everyone out of their seats it's really fun who do I think it's not for probably people who don't like shouting I can if you don't like social deduction games you're not gonna like two rooms in a boom (laughs) so Benita you're kind of the queen of parties what are you besting now to game and eat for one of your epic party nights. So when we talked about this topic earlier this month, I really honed in on a summer party Mm. vibe. My dish is very summer appropriate. You can eat it year round, but it is a mango and jicama salad. My aunt has been making this recipe for as long as I can remember. And every time she has like a barbecue or a get together, she always brings it. Like if there's a potluck, we request it. Like I've made it a few times now because I absolutely love this recipe. So 
what is in this mango and jicama recipe? Obviously mango. You are going to cube some mango. And what you're going to do is you're going to take jicama. And jicama is a root vegetable. What you do with the jicama is you make them into matchsticks. You want the jicama to be really thin. You also put some grilled corn, cilantro, put in some chopped uh, red bell pepper. Quick interruption. You're chopping your matchsticks. Are you using a mandolin or do you do everything with a chef's knife? I'm doing everything with a chef's knife. I do have a mandolin. I just find it a little bit unwieldy to use. So I, it's a little bit easier if I just chop everything up by hand. Nice, nice. And you can also add a bit of red onion if you want as well. So, you know, the best way to do it, obviously, is you take cord, you grow the cord, and then you like prune the cord into the salad. Shuck it. You shuck it. Thank you. That's the word I'm looking for. But not everyone has time to shuck corn, right? I, I generally do not have time to shuck corn. Yeah. But the Trader Joe's hack, uh, if you have a Trader Joe's near you, they actually have a frozen roasted corn. Mm, is it good? So not just... It's really good. Ooh. And it's not just like regular corn. It's specifically frozen roasted corn. Mm. And it is shockingly good. Mm. So I generally... Wait, wait, wait. That. Is it shockingly good oh that was great Casey I really appreciated that pun (laughs) (laughs) Uh, she's pitying me guys I love it you're also making a dressing with it you're using lemon or lime juice approximately around like the juice of two limes Mm -hmm. you're gonna put two Mm -hmm. heaping tablespoons of agave Mm -hmm. you're gonna put one fourth cup of olive oil you can put a little bit less if you're trying to be a little bit healthier though it is a salad so you know so the agave is sweet right yes it's a little bit it is a little bit sweetness oh interesting okay and then you're adding a little bit like salt and pepper and then you're whisking it Mm -hmm. all together and then you're pouring it on this salad and it is such a bright salad it it has Mm. so many different like flavors and textures you've got the mango you've got the corn you've got the jicama the cilantro the red bell peppers possibly onions I generally don't put onions in because I don't like raw onions always but the mango and jicama is such a good combination and you know I love mangoes so anytime I can eat a mango in any dish I'm a happy person such a good summer recipe that when we discuss like summer recipes this is the first dish I thought of and wanted to talk about I never had this type of jicama salad but it's giving me the vibe of like a Thai papaya salad is that similar flavor profile completely different flavor profile really because because that's so bright as well right but Thai food uses a lot of uh, fish sauce and and, Mm. and fish sauce has a very different flavor so so here mm-hmm. it's lime, agave, olive oil, salt, and pepper. So it's very, very mm-hmm. different flavors. Hot summer day, it's a barbecue, it's a grill. Have some of the salad and it's definitely cooling you down. My family has a lot of friends in the area and summertime is a big group time. We love eating food, we love playing games. And one game I have recently introduced to them is Night of the Ninja. Oh, yes. Night of the Ninja is designed by Justin Gary and published by Brotherwise Games. So Night of the Ninja is a really fast-paced game about deadly secret, minute assassinations, and paper-thin alliances. Your mission is to defeat the rival ninja house. It is a social deduction game similar to Two Rooms and a Boom, but I feel like it offers a really interesting twist. 
So in Night of the Ninja, you're in two teams unless you're playing with an odd number and then you have a third role in character, which I'll talk about later. What's so interesting about it is that you can still win even if you uh, your character dies because if your team ultimately wins that round, you will still get points. And I find that so fascinating because a lot of complaints that people make about social deduction games are player elimination. And yes, player elimination is in this game and you won't be able to do the actions if you have actions available but you can still win and I think that's very cool. So each round begins by drafting three ninja cards and on these ninja cards are different roles and abilities and you are going to take one, pass it to the player on the left pick one and then discard the third one. You will start every round with two ninja cards. In front of you there is a player piece that tells you specifically the order in which the cards are revealed and this game is so simple because you say okay tricksters reveal your cards everyone who has a trickster card will reveal their cards and on their cards are numbers the lower numbers players get to do the action first now some of these cards they all have different abilities some will let you look at a player's house card and the house card are the ones that were shuffled in the beginning of the game that Mm. tells you if you're on the blue team or on the red team and like what number of that team you are on because the one red house team is a more valuable player than the three red house team. So depending on the number of players, like if you're playing with uh, six players, you would have three red house uh, teams and three blue house teams to differentiate them. They have numbers on them, but your one player is more valuable than your three player because as you are playing out these rounds where you're like, could do a blind assassin or you can do like um, some switcheroo actions at the end of the round, you see who's left. And sometimes like there's only one player alive because everyone else is dead or other times there's like three people alive you then simultaneously reveal your house card and the the card with the lowest number wins so for example if there is a two blue house card a three blue house card but then a one red house card it doesn't matter that there's more blue players than red red wins and that means every other player around the table that was on the red gets to go inside a bag and take a ninja star and on the ninja star there's like points from like one to four I believe. And it's all secret. It's all random. And the game is over when a player reaches 10 points. So it's an individual player winning, not a team. Exactly. Oh, that's really neat. I like that. After every round, all the house cards are collected, shuffled, and then distributed again. So you will probably not be on the same team in the next round. Oh, that's really interesting. So you can't just keep getting like tells because you're in this, you're working with the same people over and over and over again throughout the game. Exactly. But I will say, you know, if you were a team like in an earlier round you feel like a natural affinity so sometimes you can <gasps> use that to your advantage right be like that. yeah like come on we were just on a team I would never do you like that and then you're like haha but I'm killing you now <laughs> so Benita <laughs> really your goal is not necessarily obviously you want to be assassinating the people that are on the opposite side of the team but your goal is to take out people who have lower numbers than you because ultimately it's the lowest number that wins can you take out your own team members? So you don't want to take out your own team members because you're still going to win. You're still going to be able to take out a ninja star if your team ah, may win. The team wins. If one person on, the, everybody wins. But then the next round, you're on a different team. So it's who was on the right team the most. You just got to be on the right team every <laughs> round. Easy. 
And, you know, I want to mention the fact that, like, it's not really easy to guess people's numbers. So you're mm. mostly just trying to figure out what side they're on, if they're the red or blue mm. side. And I mentioned the Ronin mm-hmm. character. Mm-hmm. The Ronin character is introduced if you have an odd number of players. And Ronins are not affiliated with either team. All they want to do is get points as long as they're alive. They're, they don't care who wins. They just want to be alive at the end of the round. I got you. I got you. So is there a way to identify the Ronin character? So you play it however way you want it. I've played Ronin character where I've pretended to be on a blue or red team. I've also played a Ronin character where I was like, yo, I'm going to tell you right now I'm Ronin. I will help you. If you don't kill me, I'll help you later. You know what I mean? Like there's just, it's mm, it's up to you to decide how you play the Ronin character. All these roles are random. I could be lying about being the Ronin character. I wasn't, but I could have been. Ah, that sounds really fun. How long do you think a typical game takes to play it all the way through so it really depends on the number of players so this game i believe plays from three to eleven people and last time i played it i think i played nine people Mm -hmm. i want to say it took an hour hour and 15 minutes but you don't like social deduction games you don't have to play until 10 points you can just play until when people are like all right i'm done like we played like four rounds now how many points we have but everyone loved it I can teach the rules in two minutes or less. Mm, And, you know, you have that player board in front of you that tells you what order you play the cards. And then the role of each card is printed on your card. So it's very, very simple to do the action and to signify that, like, the player stand that's in front of you, you just knock it over to signify that you're dead. Like, so it's a very low component game. I really enjoy it. It has become my go-to social deduction game because, you know, I, I like introducing it a lot to non-gamers because almost everyone has played a version of mafia or werewolf they relate it back to that and they're able to pick up the game faster and i just think it's a really good party game and the fact that it plays 11 players is really crucial because we got a lot of gamers in like my family group and everyone wants to play like nine people like everyone was like all in so a game that like plays in a like you know short ish amount of time but like that keeps 11 like nine to 11 people engaged the whole time it's kind of hard And Night of the Ninja does it really well. So that was this month's episode featuring summer parties and catching the travel bug. We hope the rest of your summer is filled with delicious foods and great games. If you're looking for more board game content, you can find Benita and Casey on Twitch or TikTok. And make sure you're following the feeding phase on Twitter and Instagram. And give us a like on whatever platform you're listening to right now. Finally, we just want to give a shout out to Amari Akil who wrote our intro and outro song. He killed it. Thanks for listening. See y'all next month. Get your nutrition If you need a break It's so delicious Hungry for games And all these dishes Came here to taste No competition We got board games We got fancy cuisine We got Casey the Brain We got Benita Queen Let's go on food adventures Let's go have us some fun You're in the feeder phase We might just eat and run We got Just eat and run, eat and run, eat and run.